here we go again. It's time to stretch in God's direction. It's time to challenge each other to have faith. And we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And these days, with all the things that happen around us, we need to be able to trust something. When people are disappointing us, when the institutions we've had confidence in disappoint us, it's good to come back. It's essential to come back and realize that we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. God will accomplish what he promises. He will bring to pass the things that he says will happen. He will watch out for his people. And one day he will make all of the wrong things right. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves that we can have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. So glad you joined us today. I guess it's a day of confession a little bit because I've been up to something that I don't think I mentioned on the program, but perhaps you'll be interested in hearing about my experiences during the month of October. So I thought we'd start by taking a a little glance backwards, and I'll catch you up to some things that I've been up to. And along the way, we're going to touch on something, and, and I came across during the month of October, and we'll get to this, a key question that I think every church should wrestle with. Every church needs to think seriously about this and answer the question as best they can. And I don't think it's an easy answer, but I think it's essential that we give it careful thought and answer the question. It may be a little different in each local church setting. I don't know. It's a new question to me. I'm still processing it, but why don't we think about it together? So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to an experience that I had during the month of October in Kentucky at a conference where I was both challenged and and reminded and renewed in my thinking and in my heart. And I was so glad about that. And, and there was a key statement, I mean, a number of key statements, but one that I've really been thinking about for a lot. And we'll get to that as well. You see, what happened during the month of October was my church and my church's diplomat Wesleyan Church here in Cape Coral, Florida, My church, some months ago, suggested that I hadn't had a sabbatical for a long time, and they thought I should take a sabbatical. So they persisted, and I agreed. I was really glad for the break. I think I needed it more than I think I realized. And so I was gone on sabbatical for the month of October. Well, gone in the sense that I wasn't in Florida, but not gone in the sense that I wasn't someplace. And so I learned some things by being away, having some different experiences, and I thought it might be helpful for us to to kind of take that journey again, and then you can kind of catch up on my thinking, and then we'll go from here, because we also need to get back to the Bible, because that's what we're here for mostly, is to challenge each other, and, and we want to look at another story in the journey of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. But let's take a little look back, and I'm going to tell you a few things that I did. Some of them were for fun. Some of them were for serious, that's for sure. And uh, I had some surprises. I didn't really know what to expect about all of the things that that I had planned. And some of it worked out like I expected. Some of it was a little better than I expected. Some of it was a little surprising. I just didn't know. Nothing uh, dramatic or traumatic. Don't, Don't think that. 
But um, it was quite an interesting month. I particularly enjoyed my exposure to fall because in Florida we have a kind of fall, more in North Florida than where I am down in Southwest Florida. But I really have missed having the experience of fall. So to see the leaves change and to experience a little bit of the different uh, temperature that was quite different going from Florida to, to Michigan, which is what I did. And I enjoyed that, that fall. So it started really the last week of September because it works out for pastors that if you're going to be away, you start your being away early in the week because everything builds towards Sunday when you're doing what I've done for a long time. So I left early on Monday morning, early like some something after 3, I think maybe about 3.30 in the morning is when I got in the car and pulled out. And I did that on purpose because as you travel from Florida north, there are some potential traffic tie-ups. It's just the volume of traffic. So I wanted to miss that before people got up and about. So I preferred the 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 uh, challenge of getting up early as to being patient through the traffic. So I drove up and I had a long trip in mind for the first day because it seems like to me when, when I get started on a trip, if I get most of it done early, it, it just works out better. So that's what I did. I ended up having to go a little farther than I thought, but that's just the way the circumstances of travel worked. But my first real target was to go north and to see the Smoky Mountains because I liked the Smoky Mountains. Now, there are more direct routes where I was going up in Michigan, but I like to go through the Smoky Mountains and it did not disappoint. If you ever have a chance to go to the Smoky Mountains, I encourage you to go to the Okona Lufty side of the, of the Gap Road, what I call the Gap Road, the Newfoundland Gap Road. There's a visitor center there. There's a recreated village that you can see. And what's most important or interesting to me is there's a river that flows along there. And I just enjoy walking all along the river. There's a path. You can walk back. You can walk back quite a ways. I don't usually go very far. I go back to, to where another part of the river flows into, or another tributary flows into the river. And um, there's a, it kind of curves around. So I drive, I usually walk back there and see things and then walk back. I don't, typically spend a lot of time there. It just depends how much I feel like. Well, many times, in fact, for many years now, every time I've gone through there, I've seen elk. And I walked back along there and I talked to one of the park people and no, they weren't expecting the the elk to be around. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe this is a time I won't see one. Well, I walked down the river like I usually do, turned around and started walking back. And I was going to walk up through the village, but I thought, no, I like the river better. I may as well just walk along the river. So I did. I get back to the bend in the river and I looked upstream and I could see half of an elk disappearing into the woods. That elk had crossed the river up there and I just barely got a glimpse of it. I thought, well, I at least saw half of one, but I kept walking up the, the river back toward where the car was parked and I looked up and there were elk in the river and I've seen them in the river before and they were, they were just standing there minding their own business. Went a little farther, there's a couple more. And so I enjoyed watching the elk. I watched them for quite a while. They even walked up, two of them walked up on the riverbank on our side of the river. That was quite a surprise. I wasn't expecting that. But it seems, and I've, I've known this from before, the elk go where the elk want to go, and they expect you to stay out of their way. They, uh, they are not a force to be reckoned with. So it was really quite stunning to see that, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Go to the Smoky Mountains. Most people seem to go on the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge side. 
I think that other side is really spectacular because of the visitor center and because of the elk. Well, I went on through the mountains and I stopped at the at the overlook at the at the gap there in the, in the about halfway across and took some pictures and then went on and I'd been kind of looking forward to this too and this is really kind of some of you will say silly but I I wanted to stop at Bucky's in Sevierville. I've been to Bucky's before and every time I go by a Bucky's I find a reason to stop because I'm just fascinated by their business model and the size of the Bucky's. If you've never been to a Bucky's and you go buy one, don't go by. Make sure you stop. But be prepared to be surprised. They are a magnificent place to stop on a road trip. And this was in Sevierville is the world's largest Bucky's. So I thought that'd be cool. All of them are pretty big. I, I was surprised that at the size when I first saw one. And this one's monstrous. So anyway, I got to see Bucky's. Continued on the next day after an overnight stop just north of of uh, Chattanooga, not Chattanooga. Um, uh, what's the city over there on that side of, of Nashville? But anyway, north, not not Nashville, the other side of the state. Anyway, I got north a little bit farther from the Buckies, and and then the next day I went on from there. And I, the the target was to go to Michigan, where I visited my daughter and her kids, uh, our grandkids and saw them part of the time I was on on the trip. First weekend we visited, my wife and I visited her brother's family and went to church with them. And then the next week I had the opportunity to do something I, I was not expecting. I had planned to go to two conferences while I was gone on this because I thought it would be nice for some, some enrichment things. Now the church didn't give me any expectations, so I was free to choose whatever I wished to do. And one conference didn't work out, which was fine. And this other one came up, so I thought, okay, I'll do that. So I ended up flying to Dallas, Texas from, from Michigan and attending a, a Herzog Foundation conference. It was all about donor development to help for primarily Christian schools. And I found it very interesting, very helpful, very stretching, very encouraging. The whole process that they unfolded became very doable as I grasped it, but I came away with that question that I mentioned earlier that I think we all need to wrestle with. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for churches. And this is and this is and, and other organizations, but I'm thinking today and primarily in terms of churches. But the guy who was the presenter there, very insightful, very knowledgeable, presented a question to us that he said he's been wrestling with. And I thought, yeah, after I heard the question, no wonder. And, and I need to wrestle with it too. Now he wasn't applying it to churches the way I have been thinking about it, but it was applying it to organizations. So I'm going to phrase the question in terms of churches, because that's what I fit. You can substitute the word organization if you like to help you think about it. That's perfectly fine. That's the way he did it. And I'm going to break the question down a little bit so we can think through it a step at a time, shall we? So he says, what kind of church does God trust? You know, I never really thought of it in those terms before. What kind of church does God trust? You know, we talk about trusting God, and we should, because he wants us to trust him. But we don't often, maybe hardly ever, flip that around and say, what kind of church does God trust? You know, don't we all want to have churches that God trusts? Don't you want to attend a church that God trusts? And doesn't that help us think about the kind of church we want to be a part of, that God would trust that church? 
And shouldn't it help us think about what kind of church person am I going to be so that God will trust my church? So the first part of the question is, what kind of church does God trust? Well, then he added another part to that, and he did this all at once, but I'm breaking it down to help us think about it. But then he said, well, it's not just about what kind of church does God trust, but what kind of church do people trust? Well, that's another sort of layer to think through, isn't it? What do we do as churches to be the kind of place that people will trust us? What kind of church do people trust? Now, I'm not saying what kind of church do people like. I'm not saying what kind of music do you use because that's what people think is the right kind of music. I'm not asking any of those kinds of things. They may be influenced as part of the answer, or they may be a part of the answer the way we do music and other things. But fundamentally, what kind of church do people trust? Now, I think that's a very important thing. Now, the reason he brought up this idea of trust, because he was saying, and I'm going to finish this idea, what kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources? Now, most of the churches I've been around have not been overwhelmed with resources. Sometimes adequate, sometimes barely adequate, sometimes a little more than adequate, but not extraordinary. And so the question is, what kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources? You know, we say that God owns everything, and he does. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We quote the scriptures. We know that God created the heavens and the earth. Nothing exists that he did not create and that he does not sustain. We understand that. So if God has all the resources at his disposal, then the question should be worth answering. What kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources? What kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources? Well, isn't that the kind of church you would like to be or be a part of? Church that God trusts with extraordinary resources. Well, there's a final part to the the question that then begins to focus it a little bit more because if you're going to have extraordinary resources that God trusts to your care, puts in your stewardship, shall we say, then the next part of the question kind of puts a focus on on what you do with those resources. So the full question as it relates to, to God would be, what kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? See, there's the last part of that, to do impossible things. You know, does God want to do just simple little things, or does God want to do something big, that looks like it's impossible to us, and so he would give us extraordinary resources to do impossible things. And of course, if you, if you mix in there what kind of church do people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things, then, then you've got both. You've got to be a, trust, a church that God trusts and a church that people trust. Now, you might say, well, if God trusts the church, then people will trust the church. Well, maybe. I don't think you can say that if People trust the church. God will trust the church. I don't think you could go there. But it's a question worth asking and answering. What kind of church do God and people trust 
with extraordinary resources to do impossible things. Well, I know for sure that I want to be a part of a church that God trusts. I think you probably do too. And I'm going to work on the answer to that. I've got a few ideas. I don't have it all figured out. I wonder if I will ever have it all figured out. But it is certainly a question that stretches me in God's direction and helps me to develop that kind of confidence in the trustworthiness of God that he can guide us to be the kind of church that he trusts and that people will trust so that we can do extraordinary, impossible things because he gives us extraordinary resources to accomplish what looks to be impossible. Well, that's the first challenge. Well, so after I got back from that conference, we went to a a small town in Michigan. Some of you may have heard of Frankenmuth, Michigan. It's a small Bavarian kind of town. Maybe you'd say it's a German town. I don't know the history of it. I just know I kind of like visiting there. It's just kind of a fun place to go. There's nothing by my way of thinking particularly spectacular about it. It's neat. It's cool. It's fun. It's relaxing. You don't have to feel pressured or I didn't feel at all uh, given to a rapid pace or a hectic, got to do this, got to race to do that, got to do the other thing. It was just kind of relaxed and, and easy. And so we um, we went to Frankenmuth, Michigan. Now, when you're in Frankenmuth, Michigan, there's a couple things I want to suggest you do. Go to Bronner's. If you've never heard of Bronner's, Bronner's is a store that has more Christmas stuff than you ever thought existed. It's a huge place. Magnificent Christmas decorations, Christmas everything. There's Christmas that you couldn't imagine being Christmas and it'll make your make your eyes blur over because there's just so much to take in. Now, my wife takes it in very well. I walk through it and say, okay, and that's about it. But she really enjoys it. We ended up going there twice, and that was fine. She was looking for some particular things, and sometimes you walk through a big place like that, and then you have to think about what's going on a little bit. So we went back the, the second time. And when we went back the second time, I made it a point, and I int- had intended to because some years ago, the people that run the store there, they built the what they call the Silent Night Chapel. Well, they call it that because it's a replica of the chapel where Silent Night, the Christmas Carol, Silent Night, was first performed. So if you go to that area of Michigan, um, Frankenmuth is a little bit south of Saginaw. If you go to that area of Michigan, make sure you go to see the Silent Night Chapel. It won't take you long to see it. It's small, but you go in there and it's just kind of nice to see the The replica, it's as close as I think I'll ever get to being where the song was first performed. But it's it's a fun experience and and really delightful to be able to see that. So I recommend it. And of course, while you're in Frankenmuth, if anybody's ever been to Frankenmuth, they will tell you you have to have a chicken dinner. So I'll just add that, have a chicken dinner at Frankenmuth. Well, some of the rest of the time we spent in Michigan was at our daughter's lake house. And I enjoyed that. It was just kind of a place to crash and relax and not have to do anything morning till night except whatever I wanted to do. That was great. Um, At the end of that time we were there, we started thinking about and heading back toward Florida. So I drove through Ohio to visit my sister and had lunch with with her and her husband. And that that was great. I also wanted to visit the area where I grew up, which is roughly Milford, Ohio, but there are some things outside of Milford. It's not the downtown particularly that I remember, although I remember some of the things there. And all the things that I remember, of course, are long gone. And that's that's understandable. But one of the things that I wanted to visit was a place called Fort Ancient. And you may or may not have heard of Fort Ancient, but 
I particularly remember that because our church, when I was growing up there, always had a huge 4th of July picnic at Fort Ancient. Our family and another family always got up early. It seemed really early to me. It probably wasn't that early to everybody else. But we'd get to the to the entrance to the park by about 7.30 in the morning. So we had to drive some, it was probably 45 minutes or more from our house to get there, to be in line, because we wanted to be able to be first in line to get in to reserve the area of the shelter house for our church's picnic. So that had, that was always a highlight. And I remember so much spending time there all day, running around there. And I just wanted to see it again. I hadn't been there probably since I was in the ninth grade. Uh, and that's been quite a while. So a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things are still the same. Drive back the way I remembered it. It was all, it was all there. All the buildings were still there. All the things. They've changed a few things, but that was just kind of fun to see. And, and the reason I mention that is because sometimes when we think about church, we, we overlook, and I don't know that you can force this, but don't miss the value for children of some of the traditions that go on in churches, some of the things that we do repeatedly. I always have fond memories of my growing up church family because of that picnic. And I don't know that it was particularly spiritually formative for me. It may have been more than I know. I was a kid. But it was, it was important and it mattered. And I always remember that as part of my church growing up. So if you have traditions in your church, sometimes they don't necessarily revolve around being in church and songs and preaching and all that stuff, although that's not to be diminished. I'm not saying that. But if you have some traditions, they may be worth holding on to. The other thing that I really enjoyed doing while I was there was stopping at United Dairy Farmers for ice cream. That has long been a favorite of mine because I remember as a kid going to United Dairy Farmers when we went out for ice cream, which was not often. And I always had the same flavor. I always had chocolate chip. And there's nothing like chocolate chip ice cream from United Dairy Farmers, at least in my opinion. And this time, I was so fortunate when I went, because during the time period I was there, they were having buy one scoop, get one free. So I enjoyed that very much. And I also got to enjoy peach ice cream, which is another favorite at United Dairy Farmers. Well, one of the main reasons I went there was to see some of the places that that I had been when I was a kid, and then I did get to see some of those things. But one of the one of the other things that I really intended to do was to visit the church where I grew up. And I hadn't been there for many, many years. I, I don't even remember how long it's been since I had been there, but a long time, maybe since the time I was in college. That might have been that long ago. I just don't remember. Well, a lot has changed in that period of time, and the church as I knew it no longer exists that that church closed, and I don't know all the reasons behind that. I do know that when I was in the seventh grade, our church, which was doing extraordinarily well, as I recall it, anyway, experienced a terrible tragedy. The pastor was killed in a car accident, and that, I think, really affected the church, and it may have been the beginning of some real difficult times that resulted in the church closing. I, I don't know that for sure, but I just, I just wonder and, and, and I don't throw any stones. It's just, it just happened. It's what it is. Well, they've, the church building remains, and so another group has come in, and they are restarting a new church there in that building. So I wanted to go and see the place, see the building. I remember when the new part of the building, which is now quite old, was built, and I have a lot of memories from that time, and I just wanted to see it again. So I, 
I went there one Sunday and was pleased to join them for worship. If you're in the Milford, Ohio area, I would encourage you to go. The church is called 219 Church. It's on Route 28 in Milford, really in the Mulberry area. It's on their old 28. If you know that area, you know what I mean. They built a bypass. It's not on the bypass, of course. It's on the new part. But stop in and visit them on Sunday and then go the next Sunday and then go the next Sunday and then maybe keep on going. But anyway, if you don't have a church and you want to find one in that area, go by and visit them. Well, after, after that visit, I went to Lexington, Kentucky. And so I went to a lot of places while I was gone. Drove about 4,600 miles. Well, Lexington, Kentucky was the site of a holiness preaching conference. Now, I don't remember how I happened to hear about this, but I did. And I liked the idea, and I thought, well, it might be about time for me to learn how to preach after all these many years. And so I signed up to go. Registration was relatively inexpensive. Essentially, they paid for the lunch we provided us when we were there for the couple of days. But it, in spite of what the registration was, I probably would have tried to go because I just felt like I needed to have some renewal along that line. And I was really thrilled that I did. The one person that I knew who was a presenter that at that conference was there, and I enjoyed hearing from him again. I met another presenter that was outstanding, and another, and another. They were all just terrific people. And among other things, here's what I took away from that time there. Now, this was sponsored by the Francis Asbury Society, which has its roots in American Methodism, because Francis Asbury really was the father of American Methodism. And a lot of the people that were there have been through the struggles of the United Methodist Church. And we're not here to litigate those struggles or to, or to go through all of them as much as just to touch on this. And this I did not know for sure. I had kind of gotten some hint that this was the case. But hearing it from people who had been through the struggles of the last several years in the United Methodist Church and now the decision to allow churches to disaffiliate and go their own way, all that struggle goes back to what began a hundred years ago, or maybe a little more, to the time when the church began to allow the concept of biblical authority to slip. And I think this is, this is so important. I'm probably going to say this more to people around here than they will ever want to hear. But it's so important. We are living in a time when biblical authority is slipping. We have forgotten or we're denying, you kind of can fill in some of those blanks, that, that the Bible is the Word of God and we need to understand what God is saying and give heed to it and do what He says. So biblical authority is, is a real key of our time, and that's really what resulted in the Methodist challenges of these times. And so I want to remind you in your church that the Bible really is the authoritative Word of God and we need to respect it and not try to change it. We need to, to work hard to read it carefully and understand what God is saying, to come up with the proper interpretation, not something that just satisfies what we want it to say. Many people read the Bible to figure out how they can make it say what they want to hear. That's not the point. This is so important. If we're going to have confidence in God's trustworthiness, we have to understand the authority of the Bible, and we need to listen to it and conform our lives to what the Bible says. So biblical authority is a key thing. And I learned that from that time there in Kentucky because of the sad difficulties that the United Methodist Church is having these days. 
we're not throwing stones at them, but we are trying to understand because a lot of us need to avoid those problems. And we need to keep the Bible as it's in its rightful place as the authority in what we believe and in the way we behave. Well, we left Kentucky one day about noon when the conference was over and we started driving south because it was time to make our way back to Florida. And on the way, just a couple hours south of, of Lexington, there's a place called Corbin, Kentucky. We stopped at Corbin, Kentucky. You may never have ever heard of Corbin, Kentucky, but we stopped there because that's the place that Colonel Sanders started Kentucky Fried Chicken, or as it's known today, KFC. So if you ever go to Corbin, Kentucky, stop in and visit that. It's, it's a little bit off the interstate, so it'll take you a few minutes to get to it, but it's worth the stop. It's fun to see how innovative he was. Well, we went on from there. We ended up in South Carolina where we spent a couple of days, and one of the several highlights there, but sounds like all I did was eat when I mentioned these two things. But one of the highlights, and so if you ever go to Easley, South Carolina, Easley is just a little bit southwest of Greenville. If you ever go to Easley, South Carolina, look up Keith's House of Barbecue. Outstanding barbecue. We've been there twice. This was the second time. Both times we talked to Keith. He came around and, and greeted us. And it is outstanding barbecue. I mean, outstanding. I know everybody tells you it's the best barbecue at this place and this place. This is the best barbecue I think I've ever had. It's hard to remember. I've had a lot of good barbecue. There's good barbecue here in my area, Southwest Florida. But Keith's barbecue or Keith's house of barbecue was absolutely outstanding. And I can't recommend it highly enough. It's worth it's worth making a detour on a trip to go there. Well, that's a little catch up because I was on this sabbatical. We're going to get back to some other important things from the Bible. Not that we haven't already mentioned a couple of important things to God, but we're going to get back to the story of God delivering his people out of Egypt to the promised land. So don't go away. Take a breath. Take a break. We'll be right back. I'm Pastor Rick. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, 
Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Well, the OutLoud truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, and we talk about faith on this program as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we're back to to take a look now at um, the Bible story we've been pursuing through these last several weeks, and I guess we've had enough of catching up from where I've been during October but don't forget those two questions. I mean, I think those are so pivotal for us. What kind of church does God trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? What kind of church do people trust with extraordinary resources to do impossible things? I think that's such an important question for us to think about in our churches. We get stuck on small things sometimes. What color is the carpet going to be or other kinds of things? And we need to take seriously some of these big questions like this one. Does God trust our church? Maybe that's as far as you want to get as you think about it, but that's so, so important. Does God trust our church? Yes, we want to trust God, but does God trust us? Hmm, that's important. And then the other one is, of course, the reminder that we need to preserve biblical authority. And, and really hang on to that and not let that slip away. We really need to work diligently to read the Bible carefully, to take in all of the scholarship, to sort it all out, but to never, ever, ever let the concept that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God be diminished. We can wrestle with and we should wrestle with our interpretations. We need to understand the difference between our interpretations and biblical authority. Biblical authority tells us what to believe, what to do. Now it's up to us to interpret that and to get it right. And God will help us with that. But we need to keep his word front and center, authoritative. And when God says it, we need to believe it and we need to do it. Well, there's no better story to really illustrate what God is up to in the world than the story of the Exodus of God's people from Egypt. And I've said this for a little while, that it seems to me this is the 
the big word here, quintessential salvation story in the Old Testament. It's the one that gives us the best insight into what God is doing in our world to rescue us from sin and from evil. And I confirmed that when I was at the conference I mentioned earlier, because I talked to an Old Testament scholar there and put this idea out. And I said, am I right to say that? And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. He didn't hesitate at all. I thought, wow, uh, I didn't expect that. I usually expect from people who know so much more than I do that they won't want to kind of, well, you need to think about this or, well, you need to think about that. But no, he, he agreed that it was such an important story. So we followed the people of God from Egypt and we followed their journey. Moses from the burning bush, well, it goes back a little further to the birth of Moses, but Moses heard from God at the burning bush, went back to Egypt, and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. He was speaking on God's behalf to Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh said, who is this Yahweh God? I don't know anything about him. Well, he didn't, but he was about to find out. And it's important to understand that when Moses said this to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go so that they can worship me. See, this wasn't about just getting them out of slavery, and that was important, but it was liberating them from something to do and to be something. They were God's people, and he was now going to liberate them from the clutches of the evil of slavery, but he wasn't just getting them out of there for the sake of getting them out. He was getting them out so that they could become his holy people, so that they could worship him. And foundational to what God is up to here is, of course, religious liberty. Foundational to what God is up to here, of course, is changing us so that we'll be the kind of people, and maybe this goes back to that question, the kind of people that God actually trusts because we will be people who understand how to get along with a holy God, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more as we go on. So, so Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I don't know who this God you're talking about, Yahweh is. I'm not going to do it, and you're just up to no good. And, and lots of things transpired. To put it simply, God put them through a series of plagues to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he was God and Pharaoh wasn't. The people in Egypt and Pharaoh himself thought of himself as divine. God said, not so fast. And they suffered quite a bit for God to teach them that lesson, including the lesson of Passover. When God said to his people, I want you to prepare this special meal in a special way and get ready because your liberation is about to happen. And they were supposed to take a lamb or a young goat and sacrifice that in a Passover meal and do specific things, including sprinkle blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their house to demonstrate that they were God's people and they were prepared for what was about to happen. For God had said to Pharaoh and to Moses that, that he was going to come through Egypt and he was going to send the angel of death and the firstborn of every household would die unless it was protected by that blood sprinkled on the doorposts and the little. And God actually says, the way it kind of unfolds from the original language is so important. God says, I will protect that house when I see that. I will protect that from death. Such vivid imagery of what God wants to do for us in protecting us. Such vivid imagery. Well, it's a terrible, terrible outcry in Egypt when people woke up to find their firstborn dead. It was absolutely devastating. Well, they compelled God's people to leave, get out, go, hurry up, get out, 
exactly what God had prepared them to do. And so they were ready. They got up and they left, and God began to lead them out so that they could worship him. Not just get out of Egypt, but worship him. Sometimes we think of salvation. Are you ready for this? Sit down. If you, if you haven't thought about this seriously, you need to. Sometimes we think of salvation as just a equivalent to a get-out-of-jail-free card or a avoid-going-to-hell card. You know, we need to make sure we realize that God doesn't save people. God does not deliver them from evil. God does not forgive their sins just for that to be that. He does that to make of us something more. So sometimes people will say, well, if you're a Christian, do you have to be a disciple? Well, that's just not even a, a sensible question when you think about it. God has called us to be forgiven, to be changed, to be made new, we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, to be made new so that we could become something, that we could be His, that we could be His holy people. And He's calling us to that. And if all you think of about salvation, or if all you think of when you think of salvation is, is forgiveness so you don't have to suffer punishment, then you've missed an important part because God wants to make of us something more than we ever imagined. And that's what he starts doing when he leads his people out of Egypt. So he leads them out, kind of a circuitous route that ends up leading them to a spot by the Red Sea where they essentially are trapped. You probably remember the story. They're trapped there because the Egyptian army decides to go after them. Pharaoh changes his mind, says, I'm not letting those people get out of here. So he takes off after them. It seems that God's people are trapped by the Red Sea that they can't cross. If they try to cross, they'll drown, or by the advancing Egyptian army, which may well annihilate them. Well, God had led them out on their journey using a cloud by day and a pillar of fire, cloudy, a cloud of fire, you might say, at night. So his presence was visible with them during the day as a cloud, during the night as fire. And God said to Moses, don't be so worried. Tell the people to relax. Well, they didn't quite relax easily, but God said to Moses, part the waters, and Moses went out and took the staff, and the waters of the Red Sea parted, and they went across on dry land. And interestingly enough, God moved. Remember, this cloud, this fire, cloud in the day, fire at night, was God's visible presence with them. Well, remember, this is so, so vividly important that God's visible presence moved from where it had led them to the place by the Red Sea to between the advancing Egyptian army and God's people. And so the Egyptian army couldn't advance. They were, they were stuck, stopped by God himself. Can you imagine? You're God's people. You're standing there and you're watching this fire move and get between you and the people you think are going to annihilate you. And God protects you while you escape on dry land between the waters of the parted Red Sea until you get to the other side. And only then, when everybody is across, does God move and let the waters go back together. And he does that when the Egyptians are in the middle of the, of the Red Sea trying to follow God's people. And he does that just in such a way that the Egyptians are trapped. And God delivers his people. And the Egyptians, by the hundreds, die because they wouldn't let God's people go. Well... They get across the Red Sea, and they have a number of other kinds of challenges. They have food and water challenges, and God helps them and answers them and provides for them. They get to Rephidim, and they need 
water and God gives them water from a rock, which seems quite amazing. How many times have you seen a rock give water? But God was caring for his people. They continue on, they get to Sinai, and God gives his people what we call the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we call it the law. And, and the Ten Commandments, to be sure, are only ten, but they represent the larger, what we call, law. And we're really, it was God's expectations for them. And as we read the history of God's people, we are regularly struck, I hope you are, I am, by how they describe their love for the law, how much they love the law. You know, most of us, we don't dislike the law, but we don't love it. We're involved sometimes in um, using the law for our advantage, or we have to respect the law so we aren't disadvantaged by it, because there are penalties with many laws, not all laws that man makes are their penalties. But we have this kind of uneasy relationship with law because we think it restricts us. And in a sense it does, but it also allows for the free flow of traffic. My trip that I made because of the rules of the road, I was able to travel many miles safely and without difficulty because we all knew, all the people driving knew what we were supposed to do and how we were supposed to behave. We did that and traffic flowed well. So law can be very beneficial, but it sometimes makes people feel constrained. Well, God's people love the law of God for a couple of reasons. One, and I think this is really key, and I tested this when I was at that conference with the same Old Testament scholar. All of the people that worshipped what we call idols, or small g, gods, in, in the area where, where God led his people out, all of them had gods for their nations. The Egyptians did, they all did. And in many cases, they did not know what their gods expected, and so they lived in fear that they would offend the god. They lived in fear that their failure to appease the God would result in some catastrophe for them. And so they did not have a free relationship with that God. They lived in continual concern that their God might get them, so to speak. Well, God's people didn't have that, and they they could rejoice because God had made his expectations clear. They were liberated by that because they didn't have to wonder what it took to please God. And in many respects, what we're seeing as God leads his people out and with the giving of the Ten Commandments is God is now teaching his people how to live with a holy God. It's a lesson we need to learn and recapture and renew in our day. How do we live with a holy God? That's what was going on here. This was a God that could annihilate them with a glance. He didn't. He loved them. He put up with a lot from them. But their gift of the law that God gave them was clear so they would know how to get along with the Holy God. They didn't know. They'd been slaves. Now they had to learn. It's the same way. When we come to God and He changes our lives and makes us new, we have to learn how to get along with the Holy God. Too many people think, well, I just pray a prayer and I'm done. Wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God wants to make something of us and mold us, and refine us, and make us holy. So he's doing that for his people there. Now, one of the things that that I learned also in talking to this Old Testament uh, scholar while I was away was that one of the helpful things that we might think about when it comes to law 
is that we tend to think of law in, in, the, in the modern sense of restrictions. And they thought of it differently. And I was reminded that the word Torah, which we're familiar with because it refers to the first books of what we call the Old Testament, Torah really means instruction. And so maybe what we need to, to renew in our thinking is the realization that God gives us instruction on what to believe and how to behave. And when we think about it as, as instruction, it's less, perhaps, it triggers the wrong things to think of it as limitations, but when it thinks of it as instructions, it's teaching us how to get along with God instead of teaching us what we can't do. A lot of people get hung up on what the Bible says you can't do. There's really very little the Bible says you can't do. The law that God gives, the instruction that God gives, is not terribly restrictive. It does mean that we have to do it God's way and not our way, and that's where we have trouble. doesn't matter the restriction. Where we have trouble is we want to do what we want to do, and we don't want to do what God says to do. That's the key. Don't miss that. The key to understanding our challenge with God is that we want to do it our way. God says, no, do it my way. In many respects, we're like toddlers. Toddlers want their way, and we who are their wise parents have to correct them. Well, they, they mess up badly because while Moses is getting the instructions from God, they turn away from God and develop an idol. Moses comes down from the mountain, shatters the, the Ten Commandments, indicating that the covenant has been shattered, has to be restored. God is going to annihilate his people, but Moses says, no, not so fast. Please don't. And God agrees. Later on, Moses says, I need to see you. I need some reassurance from you. And God lets Moses see his goodness can't see God face to face because it would be too much for Moses, but God allows Moses to see his goodness, and God is good, and we need to reinforce that idea, remind ourselves that God is good. And then it comes up, they have spent all this time, and we're skipping way ahead now, all this time in the wilderness because their problems with God meant that they weren't ready to go into the promised land. And God said, okay, enough already. Spend some time in the wilderness. So they spent about 40 years in the wilderness while all the people that came out of Egypt that didn't have faith, didn't have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God while they lived their lives and ultimately died. And then Moses, when they got to the threshold of the promised land, he was able to see the promised land, but God took his life there. He died. And Deuteronomy tells us in 34-7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. So Moses didn't die because he was worn out. He died because he had failed to represent God correctly before the people. And so God said, you can't go into the promised land. Well, the next story involves the entrance into the promised land and the, the development of and the commissioning of Joshua as a leader. That takes place, you could start reading about it in the first chapters of Joshua. And then in chapter 3, they come up to the Jordan and they're ready to go in and God gives them instructions to get ready to go in. He talks to Joshua about what's going to happen. He talks about and makes a restatement that the land before them, he will give them. He will drive out the people that are in that land and give them, meaning God's people, the land. It was a restatement of the promise to Abraham and the promise that God would lead them back to the land. And he restated that a number of times. 
that he would give them this land that was their destiny, we might say, their real promise from God, just be faithful to the covenant. And so they come up to the Jordan River, and then they cross the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land God is giving them. So the leadership transition is important. The people had been paying attention to Moses, mostly. Uh, they had their ups and downs, of course, but now God was making a point of transitioning that leadership responsibility and authority to Joshua. And so he was doing things through Joshua to help the people develop confidence in Joshua. So always before, God had spoken to them through Moses. Now he was speaking to them through Joshua. And Joshua gave them the instructions God had given that they were supposed to enter the land. And, and a key to that was that they were supposed to follow the priests who would carry the Ark of the Covenant, or sometimes called the Ark of the Lord, into the water of the Jordan River, and then the water would stop and they could go across without any problem. Now, the Jordan River is not a massive river. It's not like the Ohio River or the Mississippi River. It's not a huge river. It can be crossed in, in many ways without huge difficulty. When they got there this time, though, it was at flood stage, and so that made it a little bit more challenging. Some writers have said they would have been able to find a place to cross even at flood stage. I don't know. I wasn't there. They weren't there. But the important part is God said, have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water, and when their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the water will stand up like a wall. Wow, that's pretty cool. That reminds us of the Red Sea, doesn't it? And sure enough, they did that, and they could walk into the promised land on dry ground. Now, people have talked about how did God do that. There's some sense that he used natural means, and he may have, because in verse 13 of Joshua chapter 3, in the New Living Translation, it says this, As soon as their feet, meaning the priests, as soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand like a wall. And later it says, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam. So upstream, something had blocked the water. God had used something, and they walked across. It doesn't diminish the story. Some people have tried to diminish the story that God was up to it by saying, well, it was just a mudslide or a rock slide, which was common during that time of the year. No, God made that happen at just the right time for his people to cross. Now, these days, we don't use things like the Ark of the Covenant. We understand from what the Bible has taught us that God sends his Holy Spirit to be his presence, not just among us, but in us. First chapter of Mark, we have a visual expression of that to help us understand, because when Jesus came up out of the water after being baptized by John the Baptist, the text of Mark talks about how the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came down and went into him. We tend to think of the dove sitting on Jesus' shoulder. Well, that's a, an artist's description, but what's actually happening there is the Holy Spirit of God is coming down into Jesus himself. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to God's people. Jesus had paid the price on the cross. He had come back from the dead at the resurrection, and now they were waiting for God to send them the gift of the Holy Spirit, which would be God's presence in them and with them. We have that opportunity today. The Holy Spirit is given to you and I to be in us and to make us a holy people. 
We could get into a lot of things, but let me just get into this. Almost always in the life of the believer, the challenge becomes, oh yeah, I want to be forgiven for my sins, but do I want to do what God wants me to do? Am I willing to say, not my will, but thine be done? That's what Jesus said. Remember in the garden before the crucifixion, Jesus said to God, I really don't want to do this, but no matter what, I want to do what you want me to do. And for us, this whole idea of a holy life comes down to, are we willing to let God do in us a work of grace to change us so that we can do what he wants us to do? It's up to you to decide. And if he's talking to you today, spend some time with him, surrender, and let the Holy Spirit make you new. I'm Pastor Rick. We'll be back again next week.